Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Collective Inebriation. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Age of Consensus. Historian David Kennedy says that after World War II, Americans entered a period of collective inebriation, as the United States was drunk on their success. The national income nearly doubled in the 1950s, and in the 1960s it almost doubled again. In the 1950s, we also see the rise of consumer culture. Many Americans had postponed buying cars and houses during the war, so after the war, Americans were ready to spend. By the 1960s, almost 60% of American families owned their own homes. In the 1920s, that figure had been less than 40%. This rise in homeownership was due in part to the low-interest loans made available to white Americans under the GI Bill. As a result of this consumer culture, more homes were stocked with refrigerators, washing machines, air conditioners, vacuums, hula hoops, televisions, and the like. In 1946, there was only 7,000 televisions in the United States. By 1960, it had risen to 50 million. By then, 90% of American homes had a television set. American food culture also began to change. In 1948, the first McDonald's was opened up in San Bernardino, California. Consumerism changed in 1949 when the Diners Club introduced the first plastic credit card. Tourism itself changed in 1955 when Disneyland opened up in California. Taken together, the 1950s has been called a decade of affluence, and you can clearly see why. Please turn to the next slide entitled, What Does Age of Consensus Mean? From the 1950s to the early 1960s, we see a culture of conformity, meaning no dissent, no uniqueness. Everyone toes the line. And we have to ask ourselves, what role does the fear of communism play in this? Probably a big part. Popular culture productions celebrated women's roles as wives and mothers, so really quickly turn to the next slide in order to look at the 1955 article in Housekeeping Monthly. You can clearly see that this is fairly dated, as it says that women should be catering to the comfort of their men and provide him in his immense personal satisfaction. It says that you should greet him and show sincerity in your desire to please him, it says that remember his topics of conversation are more important than yours. It tells you never to complain if he comes home late or if he goes out to dinner or other places of entertainment. It tells you to be gay, to have a cool or warm drink ready for him, never to question his actions or his judgment, and lastly, and horrifically, a good wife always knows her place. So turning back to the previous slide, you can see what we mean by the fact that women's roles as housewives and mothers seems to have been stagnated in this decade. In the aftermath of the Second World War, many women were encouraged, or forced, to give up their wartime jobs to returning veterans. Yet the number of women working outside the home actually soared, especially in service and clerical work. Now we need to be clear about this point. There are a lot of women who were kicked out because of their gender but there are also a large amount of women who chose to leave the workforce. Why do you think they did that? 
Well, some historians believe it's because that many of these women grew up in the Great Depression. They worked as kids. Their parents worked. There was no such thing as a childhood, and loving families that were well-off were hard to come by. So now, in the 1950s, these women finally have a choice to give their kids what they never had, a safe space in a real childhood. But we should be clear on one more point. Only certain women are allowed to do this, like middle and upper class white women. If you're a black woman, or a native woman, or a Latino woman, you don't get this option because of the massive wealth gap and the oppression that you suffer every single day. It is also important to note that many women did not find much satisfaction in the homemaker lifestyle. They wanted more, they felt underappreciated, and they knew they could contribute in other ways. So we begin to see women resisting these gender roles, which will give rise to second-wave feminism in the 1960s. In the 1950s, we also see the growth of religion. In 1940, less than half of the adult U.S. population belonged to a church, but by 1960, over 65% did. Ike Eisenhower once said, Recognition of the supreme being is the first, the most basic, expression of Americanism. Without God, there could be no American form of government, nor an American way of life. End quote. I don't know where that accent came from. Well, why of the sudden religiosity of the 1950s? To what extent is this a response to communism? Well, the Soviets are theoretically atheists, and Americans fear dissent, and they want cultural conformity, and so they play up American religion against Soviet atheism. And also, if you think you're about to be blown up at any minute, you might want to make yourself right with God. This is why, in 1954, Congress added under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. And two years later, in 1956, Congress declared, In God We Trust, as the national motto. So as you can see, this is not a tradition invented by the Founding Fathers for a quote Christian nation, but rather a response to the Cold War and a fear of atomic warfare. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Population Movements. By 1960, one quarter of Americans lived in the suburbs, and William and Alfred Levitt built so-called Levitt Towns in places like Long Island, New York, and these became the blueprint for suburban spread. And this cookie-cutter type of house is a classic example of conformity culture. We also see the suburbs are a symptom of white flight, because in 1970, 95% of the U.S. suburban population was white. Affluent whites were leaving the cities, where poor whites and minorities congregated, and this also coincides with the reduced social services in those cities. Many suburbs had de facto segregation, as Levittown contracts prohibited, quote, members of other than the Caucasian race. We also see the rise of the Sun Belt in this era, which is the region stretching from the Carolinas to California. Many people moved to the West to work in the burgeoning defense, electronic, and aerospace industries. And the shifting American population is also reflected in presidential politics, because from 1964 to 2008, most Republican presidents come from the Sun Belt. As I mentioned in the last lecture, baseball also reflects this westward shift. 
1958, the New York Giants moved to San Francisco and the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to L.A. We also see African Americans continuing their great migration to northern and western cities as they leave the oppressive south. While Americans are moving throughout the country, a whole new generation is going to boom, the baby boomers. From 1945 to 1960, the United States population increased by 50 million souls. Many boomers will become teenagers in the 1960s or 70s, when many experimented with drugs, listened to rock music, and protested. Oh, how things have changed. The point is that American demographics radically changed in the 1950s and 60s, and our current society is dealing with the effects of such population explosions, as the boomers are currently placing a tremendous strain on Social Security, and many politicians are looking for ways to cut its funding before you'll ever see a dime. Please advance to the next slide entitled, 1950s Culture. In the 1950s, we see a new American musical form take shape, called rock and roll. Rock and roll is an amalgamation of jazz, the blues, and other elements that uniquely evolved in Memphis and the Mississippi Delta from African-American cultural influences. Sister Rosetta Tharp is often considered by some to be the grandmother of rock and roll. She was born in Cotton Plant, Arkansas to parents who worked as cotton pickers. Go ahead and listen to the clip I have put on the PowerPoint from her song, Didn't It Rain. Okay, so did you listen to it? Well, I just think she's amazing. She was popular in the late 30s and 50s and influenced many musicians like Chuck Berry, Aretha Franklin, and Elvis Presley. While Sister Tharp blended spirituals with melody-driven blues, some musical scholars believe that Ike Turner's 1951 hit, Rocket 88, is the first true rock and roll song. So please go ahead and listen to the clip on the PowerPoint. It may not seem that catchy to you, but it was revolutionary for its age. The term rock and roll was coined by a Cleveland disc jockey called Alan Freed in 1951. He noticed that more white teens were buying R&B records, which had traditionally been purchased by blacks and Hispanics. So Freed began playing R&B records but called them rock and roll, a phrase that usually referred to sex and dancing. Black rock musicians included Little Richard, Ray Charles, and Chuck Berry, just to mention a few. In 1956, a 21-year-old Memphis truck driver and singer, Elvis Presley, released Heartbreak Hotel. And I want you to go and click on the link to his Jailhouse Rock song. That video is considered to be one of the first major music videos in American history, complete with choreography and a full dance ensemble. Critics said that rock and roll was corrupting the youth of America, and some encouraged people to destroy Presley's records, because he was using African-American culture to appeal to white audiences, which many people resented. Other Americans feared that rock music might make their kids so rebellious that they would turn into communists. Which is ironic, considering the Soviets feared that rock would corrupt their youth into becoming capitalists. The point is that we see a new wave of cultural expressions in the 1950s, which contributes to numerous musicians, from the Beatles to Michael Jackson, and to rap music to this day. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Atomic Craze. 
Americans in the 1950s were subjected to a concerted propaganda campaign which resulted in a cultural obsession with everything atomic bomb-related. People took atomic vacations to the Marianas Islands and the Bikini Atoll to watch atomic, hydrogen, and nuclear bomb tests. This is how swimwear called bikinis get their name from a nuclear bombed-out island. Many took vacations to Las Vegas as well because it was close to atomic testing grounds, so people would come to watch the bombs and then stay for the music, food, and gambling. Go ahead and click on the link to see an example. Okay, so did you watch it? It's absolutely crazy. The media also became obsessed with atomic culture, and we begin seeing movies glorifying or fearing atomic bomb proliferation after 1945. We also see in 1954 the movie Godzilla was released, showing Japanese fear of atomic bombs for obvious reasons. While the American media was more favorable towards the bomb, more and more productions focused on the warnings that nuclear war could destroy all of mankind. This led to movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Doctor Strangelove, Planet of the Apes, The Day After, and War Games. Comic books and movies were also filled with mutants, superheroes, supervillains, and nuclear monsters, which propels the comic book and movie industry to the heights that we see today. Even the zombie craze stems from this atomic obsession, as some zombie movies use nuclear radiation to explain the rise of the undead. We also see the expansion of trinkets and food that are atomic-related. People built atomic gardens. You could buy anything atomic-related. Atomic seeds, dirt from nuclear testing grounds, atomic food. So no wonder that cancer rates skyrocket in this era. Once the Soviets got the bomb, many Americans were fearful, and so the American National Security Resources Board and the Federal Civil Defense Administration create blue books to disseminate policies in order to educate the populace about the threat of nuclear or atomic warfare. The most famous of these is duck and cover videos, with Bert the Turtle, who says all you need to do is duck and cover. So literally, cowering under your desk is the only answer as your city is about to be obliterated by nuclear holocaust. Now just try to imagine living in this type of awe and fear. It is no wonder that many in the older generation were so deeply paranoid about communism and bought into the logic of the Cold War, which led Americans to support horrible policies. And it also explains Americans' continued hatred of all things socialist. Go ahead and click on the link to watch the duck and cover video, or at least the first two minutes. Okay, so did you watch it? It's pretty ridiculous, but you get the point. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Age of Anxiety. Rock and roll wasn't the only thing that ruffled the feathers of affluent white Americans. The University of Indiana biologist Alfred Kinsey published a report based on thousands of interviews with women that indicated that women enjoyed sex and that 25% of married women had had an extramarital affair and the vast majority did not regret it. So obviously, this created a great deal of anxiety about the American marriage, as divorce was still frowned upon. In addition, you see the publication of Michael Harrington's The Other America in 1962, which said that 25% of Americans lived below the poverty line, 
in this book became the driving force behind the war on poverty under LBJ's administration. While many white Americans were doing well, the benefits of the New Deal and the wave of post-war affluence largely skipped over blacks and Latinos, who were not given these same opportunities, nor were they afforded the equal protections and benefits of the law. This is why African Americans are waging a civil rights revolution, which we will discuss next time. The point is that rather than an age of consensus, we see an age of anxiety with the planting of the seeds of the sexual revolution in the counterculture that will blossom in the 1960s and 70s. Please advance to the next slide entitled, We Like Ike. President Eisenhower embodied many of this era's characteristics. He was born in Texas but moved to Abilene, Kansas, a former cattle town and the geographic center of the United States. He came from a poor, religious family that emphasized hard work and self-help. He was a five-star general, but he really knew how to relate to the common soldiers. After World War II, he had served as the Army Chief of Staff, the President of Columbia University, and the Supreme Commander of all NATO forces in Europe. Eisenhower wanted to downsize the federal government and balance the budget. But like most Republicans of his day, he had no intention of tampering with the key provisions of the New Deal. Ike once famously told his brother, quote, Should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security, unemployment insurance, and eliminate labor and farm programs, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. End quote. Little could Eisenhower have predicted the 2000s. Please advance to the next slide entitled Foreign Policy. Ike's foreign policy was called the New Look and the name was chosen to emphasize its difference from Truman and NCS-68. Ike's right-hand man in foreign policy was Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, and Dulles emphasized three main points to the New Look policy. First was the concept of massive retaliation. This is where you threaten complete nuclear destruction in order to scare your enemy and prevent any conflict, not to react to it. Historian John Gaddis once said, quote, I consisted on planning only for total war. His purpose was to make sure that no war would take place at all. And some historians have posited that nuke rattling did end the Korean War, while others think it ended because Stalin died and China got tired of supporting North Korea. In this era, nukes are cheaper than conventional forces, and so Ike wants to be fiscally responsible so he can reduce manpower while increasing nuclear warheads. He wrote a friend in 1952, which explained this theory, and he said, quote, I most firmly believe that the financial solvency and economic soundness of the United States constitute together the first requisite to collective security in the free world. That comes before all else. End quote. The second part of the New Look program emphasized continued containment, but also the rollback of communism whenever the opportunity arose. The last major part of the no-look was covert actions, in which the CIA would play an important role. And why is that? Because you don't have to debate this in Congress when you go through the CIA, and it also gives the White House plausible deniability. The final aspect of the new-look was psychological warfare. 
An example of this is Radio Free Europe, which encouraged rebellions all over Soviet satellite territories, and millions of propaganda leaflets were dropped into Eastern Europe in order to encourage these countries to rebel. Unfortunately, when some of them did, the United States was nowhere to be found. Let's now take a look at one example of covert operations and how it led to blowback against the United States decades later. So please advance to the next slide, Iranian coup. In August of 1953, the United States backed a coup in Iran. Why is that? Well, Britain, the major colonial power in the Middle East, had controlled Iran's oil supply through the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. But in 1951, the Iranian Prime Minister, Mohammad Mosaddegh, nationalized the company. And then two years later, Mosaddegh seized control of Iran's government and sent the Iranian Shah, Reza Pahlavi, into exile. Mosaddegh had been supported by a communist-dominated political party. And when the United States and Britain cut off aid to his government, he turned to the Soviet Union for help. So Ike responded by endorsing a covert action to stop Iran's, quote, downhill course toward communist-supported dictatorship, end quote. Local rebels used British and American guns to remove Mosaddegh and restore the Shah to his throne. And once back in charge, the Shah signed an agreement guaranteeing the British and Americans large shares of Iran's oil for very low prices. So he's basically screwing over his own people. By 1957, the CIA began helping the Shah assemble a secret police, which he used to torture and kill his enemies and keep himself in power. So we should note that all of this will one day come back to haunt the Shah and the United States in the 1970s, when the Iranian Revolution broke out, the Shah was kicked out of the country, and the staff at the American embassy in Tehran was taken hostage and held for a year. This coup also explains why Iran dislikes the United States to this day. Well, that in the Iraqi-Iranian War of the 80s, where we funded both sides, and the fact that we surround their country with military bases to this day. More on that later. I'll go ahead and cut off the lecture here, and we will pick up next time with part two of Collective Inebriation. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.